Ephesians chapter 5, looking at verse 22 tonight. As we uh, continue looking at the aspects of submission, uh, tonight we're going to just key in on the dignity of submission. What brings dignity to submission uh, within a a Christian woman's life? I just was looking at uh, Fox News today and saw that Lois Goodman who is a pro tennis umpire, was in New York for next week's U.S. Open, where she was to serve as a line judge. The 70-year-old Goodman was met Tuesday with a felony arrest warrant from her hometown of Los Angeles, where police and prosecutors say she beat up her 80-year-old husband, beat him to death, rather, with a coffee mug back in April. And so, uh, you know, sad to hear that, um, and uh, there's just uh, obvious some sort of cancer within that home, uh, a cancer of um, no gospel, <laughs> no good news, and, uh, and just, you know, tragic and sad, and, um, you know, certainly pray for her and for her heart, and uh, that the Lord would bring the good news of forgiveness to her. Um, but just to know that, you know, somewhere within this home, uh, and of course, uh, innocent until proven guilty, um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's just talk of uh, just a fragmentation within uh, Mrs. Goodman's home, and uh, no doubt there was a lack of uh, selfless, sacrificial love on the husband's part, and a uh, humble voluntary submission on the wife's part. And uh, we can see that so quickly in our own homes, uh, in that right. Uh, we've looked in the last two weeks uh, at these different aspects of submission. Uh, we've looked at the motivation uh, behind submission. And uh, tonight we look at the dignity of submission. These, uh, uh, on top of uh, the definition of submission over these weeks tonight, What's the dignity behind this? There's three general categories that describe many marriages, and I have some slides back there, if we can get them to work. Kind of the first time we've uh, brought in PowerPoint slides um, into the service. But uh, you can just take notes if they don't come up. Three general categories that describe many marriages. First of all, there's the non-Christian category of feminism. Now, feminism would state that there's no distinction between the roles of husband and wife. They essentially live parallel lives. Uh, They're legally married, but functionally single. He has his jobs. She has her jobs. He has his interests. She has her interests. Uh, He has his friends. She has her friends. He has his bank account. Uh, credit card and finances, she has her uh, bank account, credit card, and finances. So this can go so far to lead to separate um, beds within the home and separate master suites in the home. In fact, it's popular nowadays within architecture for a new home to have two separate master suites, one for the husband and one for the wife. And so uh, uh, living essentially now as uh, roommates... Uh, glorified roommates, maybe, if that, under the same roof. 
Oftentimes what holds this non-Christian feminism marriage together are kids, if they have any, or various interests or causes or social networks. And, um, and often is the case, these marriages are just hanging on by a thread. And when these interests dissolve for whatever reason, um, so does the marriage. Um, and so the non-Christian feminism category, then we have the Christian egalitarianism category, where there's, uh, similarly to the feminism, uh, no distinction between the roles of the husband and the wife. Uh, they also live parallel lives, his life, his job, his finances, her life, her job, her friends, her finances, but they, they share in some unifying elements such as the kids or other interests, perhaps even hobbies or church, and uh, kind of goes against the uh, Genesis 2 passage of God making us one flesh. Rather, there's uh, almost more of a two-ness and uh, as the kids grow, so does the marriage grow apart. As the um, kids grow up and move out of the house, the marriage will grow apart, move distance. Men will get into their midlife crises. Women's will get into an identity search. And uh, so often this can uh, lead to divorce after kids graduate. And maybe some of your uh, homes of, or your parents, or you, know, you can relate to this close hand uh, through firsthand experience. Uh, thirdly, we have uh, what I believe is the biblical view, the Christian view, Christian complementarianism. Uh, complementarianism. First time I've said that today, so didn't do my vocal warm-ups. Um, but uh, this is just the teaching uh, from the Bible from the beginning to the end, that the world is ruled over uh, by a sovereign creator. We know him as Yahweh. We know him as God. And uh, he rules even through the government that he appoints and the church leaders that he appoints. Uh, then we have the husbands that fulfill a distinct and equal role. Um, a husband and wife fulfilling distinct yet equal roles. They live together under God's authority and uh, for a unified purpose. The husband lovingly, sacrificially leads his family. The wife respects and follows the leadership of her husband, and the children lovingly obey both their mom and their dad. And what holds them together are not the kids or the social clubs or groups that they're a part of, but rather because they're both all about worshiping God and glorifying their creator, uh, the Holy Spirit holds them together uh, as they're under that unified purpose. Uh, so Christian complementarianism, the biblical uh, category that we hope describes the marriages within our church. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, on the chapter dealing with marriage, he said, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. For that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when he says that a lock and his key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. Okay, so we have this unity within marriage, the two becoming one. 
And when we speak of the two becoming one, we do not speak of a partnership. That's a, it's a word that the world would use uh, within the partnership. It wouldn't matter whether they were male and male or female and male or male and animal or whatever it might be. Um, but uh, we speak of not a partnership, but a covenant. As the Swiss theologian uh, Karl Barth, who lived back in the, uh, between 1886 and 1968, um, held to be one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century, Carl uh, Barth said, marriage is the encounter of male and female in which the free mutual harmonious choice of love on the part of a particular man and woman leads to a responsible, uh, responsibly undertaken life union which is lasting, complete, and exclusive. And so within Bart's definition of marriage, he captures just the essence of what, you know, a word that's used all throughout the scripture, and that would be the word covenant. Not partnership, but covenant. The Proverbs speak of covenant, Malachi speaks of covenant. All throughout the scripture, we see the covenant that uh, God makes with Noah, Abraham, David, even David and Jonathan make a covenant together. There's the new covenant, there's the better covenant, the eternal covenant. Jesus says, drink this cup, it's a symbol of the new covenant in my blood. And so covenant is big. God is all about covenant. It's a word that's rich in meaning, uh, both inside and external of the Bible. Uh, the blessings and the privileges and the rewards that Christians receive, they receive because of the covenant that was sealed in Christ's broken body and shed blood. We receive these privileges and blessings and rewards and relationship um, because we're within the covenant with Jesus. People outside of that covenant do not receive the same things. Um, covenant in reference to man and woman within marriage speaks of a pledge or an agreement or a mutual obligation and commitment. We uh, just did a wedding on Saturday up at family camp. It was the first and it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, Scott and Michelle got these awesome rings for each other and uh, got a great deal on them. It was really cool how the Lord provided. But to be able to say to them, look, these, this symbol of the ring, um, it's, it's a symbol of your guys' undying affection for each other uh, by the power of the Spirit. But even more so, it's a symbol of Christ's undying affection for you through this covenant that he has made. Uh, covenant... Uh, is used in a way in the scripture that goes way beyond even commitment. In the Old Testament, there's this mutual harmonious choice, to steal from Bart again, uh, this free mutual harmonious choice of love on the part of God uh, and Israel. And then in the New Testament, there's this free harmonious choice of love on the part of Christ and the church. And so as we speak of covenant rather than partnership, we have a much more biblical, ripened, developed view of marriage than you do within uh, some hodgepodge thrown together worldly definition. Um, a Christian marriage will be a covenant relationship rather than a partnership. Partnership implies equality and sharing at every single level where a covenant, uh, a biblical covenant of marriage between the man and the wife, 
uh, husband and wife, we see that man takes the initiative and he assumes the greater responsibility for maintaining the relationship where the wife responds to that and assumes the role and the function of the helpmate that she was created to be. Uh, so there's still sharing within the covenant, but it's not on every level, even within role and function, as the feminists uh, would lead to believe, would lead you to believe. Now, within this scripture complementarian uh, aspect of marriage, man is the breadwinner. He's the father of the family. He assumes responsibilities in keeping this position. As the senior partner within the marriage, he must be willing and able to sacrifice more than the wife. Did you get that, men? You know, sometimes we think, oh, I'm the head of the house, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, hey, man, that is, that is really big. That is a great responsibility. And uh, you are that. You are the head. But it should actually sober you up rather than puff you up with pride. Are you able and willing to sacrifice more than your wife? We often think that as the head, that means that the wife has to sacrifice more for us. We're more valuable. We're more important. That is not the case at all. And that is what we're going to see tonight that will bring much more dignity than we've ever known before to the role of wife's submission as the man is that breadwinner, father of the family, assuming the responsibilities of keeping this position, the wife is the helpmate and the potential mother. She might have an outside job, but that job will not determine the spiritual direction for the family or for the home. Within this covenant relationship, it doesn't mean that a husband and wife have to share specific interests in hobbies. What it does mean is that they share the same faith and they share the basic concerns since all that each one of them are about is bringing glory to their creator and living out the example set before them between Christ and the church. It doesn't mean that the husband is going to be the master in every area, but that they will be servants to one another and to God. Partnership in the feminist level speaks of husbands and wives being co-masters, but covenant speaks of both being servants, but in different ways to Christ, who is the master in every sense of the word. Covenant is not to be confused with the patriarchal relationship that characterized most Victorian families. In that, husband was a dictator rather than a provider and a leader and a lover. In that, wife was a slave rather than a loving companion and an overseer of household affairs. And so within modernism, the modern concept would be saying that the marital relationship is based on common interests and values. Do we both snowboard? You know, are we both into, uh, you know, uh, fishing? Do we like camping? You know, are we both musicians or artists? Those, that's what's holding our family together. But a biblical concept through covenant shows that the marriage relationship is based on common faith, mutual respect, and self-giving love. Is that what your marriage is based on? It's okay to be honest. No, we're based on that we're both bird watchers. You know, it's like, well, 
Bird watching is fun, but that will not hold your marriage together. One day, one of you will go blind. <laughs> and then when that falls apart, what will hold your marriage together? Again, to quote Bart one more time, marriage is the encounter of male and female in which free, mutual, harmonious choices of love lead to a life union which is lasting, complete, and exclusive. As Art Azurdia said, it's a covenant relationship in which both partners under the lordship of Jesus are mutually devoted to serving each other, yet clearly have uh, their own distinct responsibilities. We look at the covenant to lovingly lead as husbands and the covenant to lovingly submit within Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. John Piper says one of Paul's points in this passage is that the roles of husband and wife in marriage are not just arbitrarily assigned. All right, wife, um, what are we going to give you to do today? What are we going to give you today? All right, you submit, okay? And husband, uh, I, don't know, I don't know, just be ahead or something like that. They're not just randomly given out. Um, you know, one, two, one, two, one, two, A, B, A, B. Um, but rather, it's very purposeful within marriage. Piper goes on to say, the roles of husband and wife are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ in his church. God means by marriage to say something about his son and his church by the way husbands and wives relate to each other. Now, we've talked a lot through Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. A couple weeks ago, we looked in depth at Genesis 3 verse 16 and the results of the fall and how within the fall, there was distortion of this headship as well as distortion and fragmentation of the submissive uh, design within marriage. Uh, we looked at that in Genesis chapter 3 uh, very in depth, but how it twisted man's humble, loving headship more into a hostile domination, uh, tyrannical leading. And it twisted a woman's intelligent, willing submission into so often what becomes manipulative, uh, oh, uh, quoting a, a scholar here, obsequiousness, <laughs> which is just uh, manipulative um, gimmicks, basically. Manipulative gimmicks rather than intelligent, willing, voluntary submission. That's a result of the fall. We often think that sin and a result of the fall brought out submission. Oh, well, I have to submit as a result of the fall. And he has to be the head as a result of the fall. That's not a result of the fall. That's God's sovereign creation before the fall. And thanks to the gospel... God is able to redeem true biblical headship in the husband and true biblical submission in the wife. Wives, your fallen submission can be redeemed and, been, and be given amazing worth if you model it after the way God intended the church to be to Jesus. Husbands, your fallen headship can be redeemed if you model your headship after God's intention for Christ. Not only is it an intention for Christ, but how Christ actually walked headship out as a loving, 
self-sacrificing, even to the point of death, leader. So, as husbands, we recognize through looking at Jesus and the model that he's given us that headship doesn't give us a right to command our wife around or to control her, but rather it's a responsibility to love in the same way Jesus loved the church. We don't want to manipulate or coerce her or cause the wife to cower down in submission, but we want our wife to respond to our godly, gentle leadership in the same way that Christ has the church. Ephesians chapter 5 is, a, is beautiful in drawing out submission and gently laying out there and drawing out headship and gently laying headship out there because it... Uh, guards against abuses of headship by telling husbands to love like Jesus, and it guards against debasing submission because wives are told to respond the way that the church does to Jesus. And that's never been degrading to the church. That's always been uh, our joy. Is that right? It's been our joy to respond to the kind, loving leadership of Christ. Uh, and so the way Ephesians lays it out is really beautiful and uh, really shouldn't be as controversial as we make it. Headship of the husband is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership. It's the calling for protection and provision of the home. Submission is also a divine calling, just as beautiful, just as awesome as headship. And it's towards the wife to honor and to affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it out, even through the spiritual gifts that God has given her. We've asked in the last few weeks, and gosh, it's week seven, so for the last seven weeks, what defines a Christian marriage? What makes a marriage specifically Christian? And tonight we want to add something to our definition. We want to say that uh, a marriage is defined as Christian when there is a broad submission on the wife's part to a spare nothing unto death kind of love on the husband's part. Guys, this brings so much dignity to submission that the feminist movement can never attempt to bring on their best day. And let me say it again, a Christian marriage on the wife's part has a broad submission to what's on the husband's part, a spare nothing unto death kind of love. Wives, do you not want, to, want that kind of love? <laughs> I mean, that is easy to voluntarily submit to. And lately, gals, we've been seeing, haven't we, what this means to Christian wives, how does a Christian wife respond to the romance of her husband? We'll be getting into that more as the weeks go on. How does the husband romance and what is headship? And we'll get into that a lot more as we kind of crest after next week into getting more to the 115 words given to husband. Lately, we've been on the 40 words given to the wives. So the husband section might be a little bit longer uh, in the weeks to come. Um, so this submission, we defined it two weeks ago as her voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. Okay, that's what submission is. 
the voluntary yielding to the love of her husbands. As Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We were giving a right definition to submission about three weeks ago. And the first thing we did is we looked at verse 22. And the first word in the sentence is wives. And it shows us that this is addressed to wives. It is not a verse given to men as a weapon against their wives. And it doesn't give the men the prerogative or the right to speak it out over their wives, commanding her to submit to him. But it's a charge to her to fully and freely and voluntarily as a responsible being submit and surrender to the love of her husband. The metaphor back in the 60s and 70s that I'm sure many of you remember more than I do is that a woman who would get away from this would be somewhat of a bra burner, right? That was a revolutionary concept. Concept: Burn the bras and be more like men. But what Paul's saying here is much more revolutionary, much more astounding than bra burner as he says, hey, how about a voluntary, not because your, your husband's your master or ruler over you with a rod of iron and you're his slave, but a voluntary yielding and submitting to this love, which when you look at the love, it is a self-sacrificing, all-consuming, unconditional, to the point of death type of love. It's way more astounding Last week, we looked at the unique motivation behind Ephesians 5.22. That the gospel provides the uh, information regarding the need to submit, but it also provides the power and the propulsion behind submitting. As we looked at all the statements after the commands, that it would be as to the Lord, because of Jesus Christ and who he is in your life. This voluntary yielding, will display the woman's voluntary yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ. A voluntary submission on the part of the wife to her husband will show that she's also and equally voluntarily submitting to Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Wherever there's a lack of submission to your husband, even when he doesn't deserve it, it shows that there's a lack of submission to your Lord and Savior in some level and perhaps in a, an equal, equally proportionate level uh, to Jesus. That's important. I mean, that's something to write in the margin of your Bible. <laughs> that's something to put, uh, you know, on, on your mirror, gals, next to your vanity. Because uh, it's, it's so true. The depth of intimacy and relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus is going to be equal to the depth of submission that we have to our husbands that you have to your, I don't have a husband that I'm submitting to, except for Jesus. He's, he's my husband. Um, and so the point of all of this is to get away from the idea that the woman should just try really hard to be experienced and to master the art of being a wife as if that was the issue at hand, that if she could just master these certain domestic techniques and become a really good baker and wear an apron and keep the house clean, 
you know, and, and, you know, put little notes in her husband's lunch as she sends him off to work and, you know, make sure the kids are washed and fed and properly clothed and that their attitude is good when the husband comes home. It, it goes way, way, way beyond that. And yet it's so simple at the heart. What Paul is not saying here is that the mom needs to do what my mom did Go to OSU and graduate summa cum laude with a you know, degree in home ec communications. That's my mom. And then what did she do after gradu- graduating OSU? She went and got on a horse and chased cows around and drove a feed truck. That's not what Paul is telling the wives to do. Just become home economics uh, majors. But rather, he's saying, gals press into godliness, press into devotion, press into a fear of God, and let the expression of your Christianity come out by the fruit of the Spirit in submission to your husband. Christian books have reduced all of this to schemes and thingamajigs and gadgets and manipulative tactics. And they make wife being some sort of a craft that needs to be mastered. You go by the DVDs and you'll see it. You go by the Christian books and you'll see it that have that verse slapped on there on the cover. But it misses, as we studied last week, the whole scheme of Genesis to Revelation. That it's not by might and it's not by power and it's not by becoming more domestic, says the Lord. But it's what? It's by my spirit. It's by my spirit. This song that Rich wrote recently, you know, it's, it's, Lord, more of you. More of you is just that chorus that, you know, he wrote it so that you could fill in more of you in Rory's preaching, more of you in Tammy's worship leading, more of you in Kevin's, you know, men's group, more of you in Gina's marriage, more of you, and, and more and more, Jesus, we need more of you. As we have more of Jesus, he'll be just working out naturally. Just the beautiful wife that he's created you to be. The beautiful husband, you know, the leading husband that he's uh, called you to be. In all of this, the point is that a good Christian cannot be a bad wife. You got that? A good Christian cannot be a bad wife. We see in verse 21 that yes, a wife is to submit to her husband, but the verse before, verse 21, that there's to be this submitting to one another in the fear of God. One writer, Gilbert Belenskian, if I'm saying that right, wrote a book called Beyond Sex Roles. And in page 154, he says, by definition, Mutual submission rules out hierarchical differences. He's basically saying verse 21 cancels out verse 22. In other words, if mutual submission is a reality between husband and wife, then it's a contradiction to say that the husband has a special responsibility to lead the wife and the wife Uh, excuse me, and the wife has a special responsibility to support that leadership and carry it through. 
But the funny thing is, is that that same writer within the uh, same chapter said that the church thrives on mutual subjection. In a spirit-led church, the elders submit to the congregation in being accountable for their watch care, and the congregation submit to the elders in accepting their guidance. Later on, he even says, the congregations submit to their leaders by obeying. So he even says and acknowledges that even though there's a mutual submission to one another in love, there are different roles and functions on a whole other level by which there's ruling, loving, self-sacrificial ruling on the part of the elder and submitting and obeying on the part of uh, the, the flock. And so here, there's a reason in verse 22 why submission is referred to particularly to the Christian wife. And it's not because of culture, that's obvious. And it's not because of the societal norms, that's obvious. I mean, Paul didn't live in that type of a culture or society, and neither do we. There's not this contradiction between mutual submission and relationship of leadership. Christ submitted himself to the church in a way, in a, in a way of servant leadership that cost him his life. He submitted to the needs of the church. And the church submit herself to Christ in another way by honoring his leadership and following that leadership. Christ is still the head of the church. Christ is still the leader and provider of the church. Paul addresses the wife directly and calls the wife to submit voluntarily. And that just bucks the cultural norm. Look back at Ephesians 5.22. For wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. You might look at the word there in verse 23. It's the word for or therefore. Uh, for there is an exponential. It means there's more coming out of it. Why is the husband the head of the wife? What does this mean? And the interesting thing is Paul doesn't elaborate on it. I mean, he assumes that we know. He assumes that the Ephesian readers know Genesis chapter 2. That before the fall, there was the implication of the headship of Adam. And because it's there in Genesis chapter 2, it's always been considered the paradigm or the standard for marriage. And so Paul assumes that to the best, uh, to the rest of, uh, that the readers, to the best of his knowledge, they've read the rest of the scripture. They know Genesis 2. He does it again in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2, referencing even in 1 Timothy 2 back to uh, that Adam and Eve role and how Eve stepped out of that role. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. We've looked at how the concept of submission and headship have been perverted and made crooked by sinful man. That men have used submission as a tool of tyranny. Probably some of you, some of your parents, some of your dads have used the word submit as just a, a, as a concept to abuse and enslave and dominate uh, their wives. And we know that this doesn't devalue or diminish women. And we know this because it's 
the role that God has created and intended for the wife in his sovereign creation of her. People have tried very hard to make this word of headship, uh, the husband being the head of the wife, uh, they've tried really hard to make it anything other than authority over their wife. One objection to the pattern of leadership and submission is that some men say that the term head doesn't mean leadership at all, but instead it means source, kind of like how we use fountainhead or head of a river, the source of a river. So, you know, these uh, critics would say that the husband is not the leader of his wife, but he's kind of the source of his wife. As the southern men would say, that dog just don't hunt. That doesn't turn out right. It doesn't fit in the context of Scripture, even within the same book. Uh, It's not the normal meaning for the word head back in Paul's day. And and, uh, some of these articles that would defend the the right biblical uh, use of the word would go so far to say that if head means source, what is the husband the source of? What does the body get from the head? Well, the body gets nourishment, right? The body gets nourishment. We can understand that because the mouth is in the head and the food goes through the mouth. So the rest of the body gets nourishment from the head. That's not all the body gets from the head. The head or the body gets guidance from the head because the eyeballs are in the head. The body gets alertness and protection because the ears are in the head. So, if the husband is the head and is one flesh with his wife, as verse 28, I believe it is, says there in Ephesians 5, therefore, then he's the source of nourishment, guidance, alertness, and his primary responsibility is for leadership and provision and protection. So, even if you use the critic's definition of head being source, the most natural interpretation of these verses is that the husbands are called by God to take primary responsibility of Christ-like servant leadership and protecting and providing for the home, the husband, the kids. And the wives are called to honor and affirm the husband's leadership and help carry that out. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, we'll turn over there. Paul uses this word head here at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So can Paul be thinking of anything other than leadership authority in the context of Ephesians chapter 1? No, he cannot. Authority was granted to Christ in consequence to his perfect life, perfect death, awesome resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, and the ministry that he carries out now, that causes the church to lovingly respond uh, in submission to him. You guys get the picture of what gives submission any form of dignity? Jesus does. He shows us that, that 
Submission is very dignified. He modeled it himself as the submitor, and he modeled it himself as the head that should be submitted to. He's the savior of the body. Verse 24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. Sorry, we jump back to chapter 5 if you're confused. Uh, Verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Verse 24, this word therefore is better translated, but there's a contrast there. To Jesus being the Savior, Paul is speaking to wives and husbands, and nowhere in the context is a wife referred to as the husband's body. Uh, What it's saying is Jesus isn't only the head of the church, but he's the savior of the church, a savior who actually surrenders his life for this covenant with her. Flip to Philippians, flip to Philippians 2.2, where Paul shows uh, Jesus' example of this. The savior surrendering his life For the bride, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So headship that we'll get into in a few weeks is only functional when it's exercised within the context of what Philippians 2, what we see there self-sacrificial, spare nothing unto death, a savior kind of love. It brings incredible dignity to submission and it brings function, correct function, to a headship leadership. Other lovers seek to enjoy the surrender of the woman through patriarchal dictatorship. But... This lover, for his bride, in Philippians chapter 2, surrendered himself. And Jesus leads as the example of that. It gives us an aroma of his authority. That hopefully that same aroma is diffused throughout us who know Jesus and press in close to him. Submission is a dignified command now. As the wife is so prized by the husband, like the church was so prized by Jesus that he spare nothing and the husband will spare nothing to seek and secure her good even at his own personal expense. See, men think that headship means I have the final say and that that's what it totally encompasses. I have the final say. I have the final vote. My way goes. But that's not what biblical headship is. It's much deeper than that. One well-known speaker referred to Ephesians 5 as the chain of command passage. 
Like in a military, you know, there's the chain of command. I outrank you, so I make the final decision and don't question my orders, soldier. You know, I'll, I'll give you, a, what do they call it when you have to go to the court, the, you know, court martial. What's the court, you know, where you're marshaled in and you've got the kind of a court martial thing going on? <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed since I claim to be such a military guy. You know, we don't say, you're in, an insubordination soldier. Get to the brig. See, I knew that word. Get to the brig. But rather, what headship means is that I love you so much. And I have to, I have a responsibility to make the best decision for your benefit. This best decision is driven by this priority of love that I have over you rather than over myself. I have a priority to love you. I don't get my way. Whatever I choose is driven with your best interests at hand. Now, we need to define best interests. The wife's best interests. We're not talking about what's just going to make her happy, per se, because that can all be very sinful, very idolatrous, very counter-gospel. But what is her best interests? Well, on one level, I want to look out for your physical well-being, your safety, your provision, your health. I want to guide you. I want to teach you. But more importantly, I want to seek for you to have a spiritual maturity. And I want your life to be directed towards worshiping and glorifying your creator and knowing him on a deep level. That's really what's at her best interest. Everything else is secondary. And so, there in Ephesians, the husbands aren't told to be the head, but rather the husbands are told, you are the head. Don't be the head, you are the head. And so, we function as the head, as husbands, and we're kind of cresting over, over the, slowly we'll start cresting over into more of the husband's function we function as the head in the same way that Jesus was head over the church, loving the bride with a self-sacrificial love. Who gets to make the final call? Well, if you're asking that, you're getting away from Ephesians chapter 5. That wasn't the point of it, to just have some sort of a pompous, arrogant, get-to-make-the-final-decision type of an attitude. But rather, as we look at the gospel, as we look at Jesus' model for us as the head, we don't say, I get to make the final call. We get to say, I am in every way so absorbed for what is best for you that every decision I make is to be serving you. I want to serve you. And I want to point you to Jesus in this decision-making. Within the covenant of marriage, the head belongs to the husband. The headship conveys authority. He leads. He supplies the direction, the nourishment, the guiding, the protection, and the weight of family responsibility and family direction is unique to him. He bears a responsibility that demands this deeper sacrifice. And one problem that we have within the home, without getting too 
focusing on husbands, is this sinful passiveness within the home. You go out to work, husbands, you make a check, you bring it home, you hand it to the wife, and then you sit down on the couch and you veg out until you get back to work again. There's absolutely no heart in you to play with the kids, to pray with the kids, to teach the kids, to serve within the home, to help relieve pressure, to bring relaxation to your wife, to act as a priest over your home and over your children, pointing them towards Jesus. There's no caring for your wife or making opportunities for her to rest and to be refreshed. But you're very passive. And you even let your wife lead. You sit by like Adam and you watch your wife lead the home. Women will often say, I want to follow, but I've got nothing to follow. I've got a slug on the couch who doesn't do anything. I wish he'd pray for me. I wish he'd read to me, but he doesn't. So the wife starts to lead. The wife starts to pray for the home. The wife starts to read over the home. The wife begins to be the one that goes to church. Guilt and condemnation come upon both parties until finally the husband lets pressure build and build and build until finally he throws out Ephesians 5.22 that she just needs to submit and she doesn't take it with an ounce of joy like he thought she would. That was only wives laughing, actually. There's failure in not leading on the parts of the heads of the home. Now, it'd be one totally different thing if there was failure in leading. Lord bless him, he tries to lead. <laughs> Doesn't do a great job, but he tries. That's not often the problem within the Christian home. The failure is failure to lead, to care at all. Guys, don't fall into that trap of being passive. But model, or rather, follow after the model of Jesus. And we'll look at that more in the weeks to come. He was an initiator. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from his prison cell. Remember, Dietrich was a Christian German who was uh, thrown in prison by the Nazis and was later um, murdered by the Nazis. But he wrote uh, a wedding sermon from a prison cell back in 1945. And he said, now when the husband is called the head of the wife, and it goes on to say, as Christ is the head of the church, something of the divine splendor is reflected in our earthly relationships. And this reflection we should recognize and honor. The dignity that is here ascribed to the man lies not in any capacities or qualities of his own, but in the office conferred on him by his marriage. The wife should see her husband clothed in this dignity, but for him it's a supreme responsibility. As the head, it is he who is responsible for his wife, for their marriage, and for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. He is its mainstay and comfort. He is the master of the house who exhorts, punishes, helps, and comforts, and stands for it as their priest before God. In the design itself, in the very fact that a sovereign creator created marriage the way that it is, there's incredible value and worth in a wife submitting to her husband and to a husband being head over the home. 
The Christian husband is given the responsibility of leading and directing his home. He is the head of his wife, not the savior of his wife. There's a whole big study in there on on not mixing words there. And I'm the savior of the wife too. No, Jesus is the savior. He's the Lord. He's the Christ of the body. The husband's not that savior. But he's to imitate everything about the savior's headship. He's to take on the style of the savior's leading. We're to be imitators of God, imitators of Christ as dear children. And everything about our leadership needs to show that we would die and live and die violently if necessary for our wives' best interests. Bound up in her, not in ourself. Whenever leadership and control and position are fought over, we can go back to Jesus when Mark 10:45 he says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many this comes up so often in fact it's come up in the last two elders meetings where we're talking about men being raised up into leadership in this church and be encouraged there are awesome men that are being raised up into leadership in various capacities in this church But we say we are not interested at all in just appointing somebody because they've got qualifications, or excuse me, because they've got a diploma on their wall. But we want to look at men who are serving the church, serving the people, and women, who are serving the church, loving the people. They love God, they love people, and they're without any office or title given to them, laying their life down for God's bride. And we say, that guy though he doesn't have an office attached to his name, he's an elder because he's elding. He's a deacon or she's a deacon because they're ministering. And so it's only natural to give them that leadership position because they're already doing it. They're already doing what Jesus did by laying their life down for the flock. And that's what a husband leader is to be. A guy that says, I'm here for everybody else. Back in the 1930s, it's been kind of cool to get to know uh, Robert Marshall a little bit. He was um, the uh, chaplain to the Supreme Court, to the, or excuse me, to the United States Senate. And uh, back before he was the chaplain, he was a, a Scottish preacher uh, going around and just preaching, you know, on the flatbeds of trucks, you know. And, uh, and he became very well known. But uh, his wife... Before she was known as Catherine Marshall, she was known as Catherine Wood back in the 1930s. And some of you gals might know her as the writer and author of the best-selling novel, Christie. Remember my mom watching uh, the movie and reading the book. Um, and, uh, and as uh, Catherine Wood, any relation, Tammy? No, not that you know. <laughs> um, uh, she was 20 years old. And 85 years ago, she was at this rowdy youth event where... Uh, the, the kids were being rowdy and they were being rude and they weren't really listening to the speakers and, and her future husband, they weren't even dating at the time, uh, Peter Marshall said, I'm not going to speak tonight. He was, you know, he's 30. He was my age. You didn't think they'd listen to him. I'm not going to speak tonight, but there's a young lady here who's part of our leadership team and she's going to get up here and speak. And Catherine's sitting there like, do we have a young lady that's part of the leadership team on this? And then she realized, oh, he's talking to me. And so 82 years ago, this 20-year-old girl woman got up and spoke and said this to a bunch of youth. She said, I never thought much about being a girl until two years ago 
when I learn from a man what a wonderful thing it is to be a woman. Until that Sunday morning, that's the day she got saved, I considered myself lucky to be living in the 20th century, a century of progress and emancipation, the century when supposedly we women came into our own, but I'd forgotten that the emancipation of women really began with Christianity. When a girl, a very young girl, received the greatest honor in history, she was chosen to be the mother of the Savior of the world. And when her son grew up and began to teach his way of life, he ushered women into a new place in human relations. He accorded her a dignity she'd never known before and crowned her with such glory that down through the ages, she was revered, protected, and loved. Men wanted to think of her as different from themselves, better, made of finer, more delicate clay. It remained for the 20th century, the century of progress, to pull her down from her throne she wanted equality for 1900 years, 1900 years she'd not been equal. She had been superior. To stand equal with men, naturally, she'd have to step down. Now being equal with men, she's won all their rights and privileges. The right to get drunk, the right to swear, the right to smoke, the right to work like a man, to think like a man, to act like a man. We've won all this. But how can we feel so triumphant when men no longer feel as romantic about us as they did about our grandmothers? When we've lost something sweet and mysterious, something as hard to describe as the haunting, wistful fragrance of violets. Of course, these aren't my original thoughts. They're the thoughts that I heard that Sunday morning. But from them, some thoughts of my own were born. And the conclusion reached that somewhere among the line, we women got off the track. And that was back in the 30s. <laughs> wonder what she'd say in 2012. This unique dignity that God has given and created for the Christian wife, that she's to be the recipient of her husband's self-sacrificing, putting her first, laying down his life for her to the point of, even if necessary, a brutal, violent death like Jesus. The idea of submission to love, it's a coordinated movement, not like the military march, but like a ballet. As Artaxerdia called it, a, a choreographed submission to love. Chore choreographed dance of submission to love. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Submission is dignified by the example of Christ's relationship to the church. A woman's given the privilege of being the object of her husband's savior-like love. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that you would forgive us as men for bringing this headship into that dictatorship-type uh, role where even patriarch... Uh, can become sinful, it can become a sinful role, a sinful style of home leadership. We pray for just the, the women here who have not been given much to respect or much to submit to. Lord, I pray for the husbands right now as a head that they would give their wives the honor and the dignity and the respect that those wives deserve, that those 
that those wives should get, Lord, even as being just co-created in the image of God, and that, therefore, it just be the wife's most natural impulse in the world to respect her husband. Lord, we pray that you would just transform how we view a leader, both as men and as women. Lord, we pray that you would confront just a woman's bent towards ruling over her husband in a manipulative demeaning fashion and, and uh, Lord, that you would subvert a man's incorrect way of ruling over the wife as well, tyrannical and violent and abusive. Lord, that we would just get back to this beautiful submission and headship that we see modeled in Jesus. We confess as husbands that we cannot in our own strength and apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot love our wives in the same way you love the church. And Lord, I just know the wives, their hearts here tonight, that they confess too that they cannot submit to their husband even when he's deserving it, or that their bent will be to rule over him. And so, Lord, that the wives tonight, they would cry out for a closer, intimate relationship with Jesus and a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit in and upon their life, that they could subordinate themselves willingly to their husband, and for those wives that are here tonight, that their husbands don't deserve it. Their husbands are less godly, perhaps less intelligent, less uh, leadership capable. Lord, that uh, by your grace, you would enable, motivate, propel help our wives here to submit to their husbands. And like First Peter says, that when there is that right submission, that even a non-believing husband could be one because that wife has not tarnished the gospel. Lord, bring the application to our hearts tonight by your spirit. We see sin, we see the fall, but Lord, we see Jesus who came to redeem fragmented headship and fragmented submission. Bring it all together, Lord, and heal it. Approximate it to the Garden of Eden for your glory in our homes. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's close with the song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.